morning. Merry New Year to everybody. Huh? Thanks, man. <laughs> I almost put some slacks all the way there, If <laughs> you got your Bibles, go to the book of Second Peter. Second Peter chapter one. We get to Second Peter chapter one. We're going to start at verse one. Let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, thank you, God. Just thank you for being God and for being here. And please help us to never forget you, God, to always keep you in the forefront of our minds, to truly love you and embrace you with all of our hearts, to pour ourselves out to you, God, knowing that you are only hope. You are all that we have. You are our reason for being and living. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Second Peter chapter 1. This is the very first text of scripture that was preached in this building that we call DNA. It's one of the foundational texts for who we are and what we do. It, it gives us our life mission. And it is the foundation for all we've been talking about for the last, what, two years? It's been one long sermon for two years. And this is the basis of it. And everything we say goes back to here. And we're just going to have a little refresher because as we go into talking about what it means to be saved and how is it that we are saved and, and, and just the true reality of salvation, what I don't want to do is to allow the connotations, the, the, the ideas that the world has placed on this term to replace all that we've been learning and focusing on. Because immediately when we talk about being saved, when we talk about having salvation, our minds contort to a couple of things. Being saved to most people is going to heaven. We're trying to get our ticket out of hell and escape the wrath to come. And we're trying to get to the, the good place. The streets of gold and all that good stuff. So immediately, that's where our mind goes. When we ask people, are we saved? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to heaven. I'm, I, I, I believe in Jesus. And that's slightly distorted. Because we don't get saved to go to heaven. And another thing that goes in the mind of people when they talk about getting saved is life getting better. Like I was baptizing at the old church I was at. I was doing the dunking. And the guy came back there. I guess one of the dudes he witnessed to and got to come to church. And he came there to give him a little prime up. It's like, uh, you know they're going to ask you some questions about the testimony. Well, what you going to say? And dude was like, man, I, I really don't know. I ain't know that. Uh, it's like, uh, tell them about since you've been saved, how many cars you sold. And he was like, yeah, that's cool, but I don't think it's about that. Now, this is the, the, the little rookie telling the folks who disciple him. It's like, I don't think it's about that, man. And really, all I know is I love God. <laughs> but the dude was trying to prime him up because in his mind, his salvation was connected to his life getting better. It's like, yeah, man, it's a pretty, pretty decent month and sold some car, but I don't think it's about that. But he couldn't detach it. The guy, his salvation was connected to him prospering. And he was one of them checks in the mail, rebates and returns type dude. And that's what salvation is to some people. And even us who don't get that deep and, and think everything is all about money, we begin to evaluate the peace in our heart, our, our family relationships, and all those, those. Those are benefits of salvation, but those are not the reasons that we get saved. Those are things that come from it, but that's not what we're looking for. Because if we get to go to heaven, and God is not there, would we want to stay? Like, would we, we want to be there? If you get all the streets of gold, and you get all the little peace, and you float around on your little cloud like they tell you with your little angel wings, if you get to have all that, absence of the presence of God, would we enjoy being there? Like, you'd be like, cool, that's a good deal. I'm saying, Jesus, i take that. <laughs> and that's the mindset we need to, to work on so as we go on we're going to be talking about what does it mean to be saved so let's, let's look at this Second Peter chapter 1 
verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. This is Peter's greeting. The point we want to point on is that he said, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So we talked about a couple of weeks ago. That grace is the thing that saves us. We ain't saved by believing. Believing is what gives us access to the grace of God. But the grace of God is the thing that saves us. It don't matter how hard you believe unless you got grace, you ain't going to be saved. But grace is the thing that brings salvation. But Peter tells us that grace and peace is multiplied through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want your grace to increase, the power of God being manifested in your life, your ability to do and walk the way that God designed you to walk, the knowledge of God needs to increase. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So it's not through formulations of religious practices that we get more grace in our life and we get more discipline to be what God created us to be. Is as we increase in the knowledge of God, we increase in grace and we increase in peace. These things come through the knowledge of God. So our quest in life is to know him. That's the only thing we want out of life is to know God. And if we put everything that we put together together, that's the only reason we exist. It's to know God. We were created in the image of God. We were called forth from God. When God made man, he spoke to himself and he pulled you out of him. So your existence as a human being is to be connected to him. You are the image of God, an image bearer. You're supposed to house the very presence of God. That's who you are. And if you do not have the knowledge of God, you're not being what God created you to be. You were made for this, to know him greater than any other thing that you can do, greater than any other thing people can call you, knowing God is what you exist for. So if you save the world, you cure, cure cancer, it, it, all that stuff don't matter. If you do not know God, you fail to do the very thing that you were designed to do. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? And that knowledge is what allows us to be who God created us to be. It says in verse 3, this is how the grace and peace is multiplied through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, according as his divine power have given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that have called us unto glory. You see, y'all see the theme repeating itself throughout the text. Grace and peace comes through the knowledge of God. He's given us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of God. That's deep. So you ain't missing out on nothing if you got the knowledge of God. Everything that pertains to life and godliness, you got it. Through the knowledge of him. I mean, what is this, that? That hath called us unto glory and virtue whereby are given unto us exceeding, exceeding in great and precious promises that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That's deep. So through this knowledge of God, this glory and virtue that he called us to, it says we are given exceeding in great precious promises. So there's some promises that go, that go way beyond. They're great and they're precious and by these, we become partakers of the divine nature. So we get to have the very nature of God living inside of us. We get to share in Godness if we hold on to these great and precious promises that God has given us. And all of these things flow from the knowledge of him. So the more we know God, promises are attached to this knowledge of God. And as we believe those promises, it transforms us to where we live in the very nature of God. That's the way life is designed. That's the way it works. Are y'all with me? That's deep. But we talked about it. So just rehashing. There's this monster on this planet that we call sin. A very dangerous thing. The most dangerous thing on the planet. There's nothing more dangerous than sin on this planet. And the worst thing about sin is it has the tendency to live wherever you live. Like it looked like crazy. Like everywhere you go, it's, it had the tendency to live exactly where you live. It's like there's no sin free zone as long as you're around. Like everywhere you go, you bring sin with you. Like, why you be doing that? 
And the reason that is, is because this sin thing, it gets inside of us, it affects us, and it becomes a part of who we are. And so we carry this barrier with us called sin. And the reason I call it a barrier because Isaiah tells us that our sin separates between us and God. So we have a destiny to live with God, to be with God, to walk with God, to be in union and communion with God at all times. But we got something in our nature that makes that impossible. The Bible says that the natural man cannot please God because the flesh is an enemy of God. The very thing that you were born with hate God. It don't want to be with him. It does not desire to please him. It cannot please him. But it's in you. So how is it that we can be what God created us to be when the very thing that's in me is fighting against me being that? And that's the dilemma that we run into when we understand our hope and our destiny as the children of God. The book opens up with God walking in the cool of the garden with Adam. And it ends with us being in the very presence of God. There's no sun, there's no moon because God is the light of it. We don't need no temple because he is the temple. So we lived in a place where he is our atmosphere. But all in between, we got this thing that creates separation. And it is the sin nature. It kills us. It makes us enemies of God. It makes us to be haters of God. It makes us to be everything but what God created us to be. And that's our dilemma. You were made to know God, but ignorance dwells inside of you. So how do we overcome this ignorance, this hatred, this evil that we call sin? And that's the question. But the thing I want you to get as we go forward is to understand that us being delivered from sin is not for us to have a better life. What I mean by that? Man, it's sin because I got all this sin in me. I keep in and out of relationships. I'm just tired. Good you tired. But you don't seek Jesus to get better relationships and hope that someday somebody going to marry you. That's not what you're seeking God for. You don't seek Jesus because you, you got a gambling problem and, and, and life and got bad and you just tired of burning up all your money. Jesus can help with all those things, but that's not the purpose of us seeking him. God is not a means to an end. We're not seeking through God to get something else. God himself is our hope. He is our glory. That's what we're on the quest for. And the reason I hate sin and the reason I want sin is eradicated from my life is not because it makes life hard, not because it put me in situations that I don't need to be in. I might go to jail. It's because it separates me from God. And until you get to the place where that is your mindset, you are not at a place where you're ready to seek God. Because you're searching for something else. You're looking for peace. You're looking for tranquility. So you're looking for wholeness and a better identity. You don't want people to look at you that way no more. That's not what we're questing for. So the reason we hate sin is because sin separates us from God. And when we seek to be delivered from sin, we're seeking to be restored back to God. Are y'all understanding what I'm saying? And that's where we're at. So we're on this quest to be restored. We're on this quest for restoration. And we're on this quest to gain God because that's what we need. Now, the amazing thing about this thing is God is a very wise God. And in his wisdom, God understood. Just think about this. Somehow God knew how the world's supposed to work. Y'all thought about somehow God, somehow he figured out how the world was supposed to work. And so he understood our dilemma, that you're a sinner and you don't like him for real, but for some reason he want to be with you. Why? I have absolutely no idea. It has to be just because that's who he are, who he is, rather. Now, since he know the way God, the world works, I don't know how you figure that out. He done did some things on your behalf so that if you just pay attention and do stuff his way, you automatically get the conclusion. I'll show you what I'm talking about. We're going to take this little journey to build your faith and, and, and get you in. But the point of this journey is to get one thing, to understand salvation. Understand salvation. And you're going to see a mystery in it now. I'll tell you, God know the way the world works. I don't know how he figured it out. But he, he know the way the world works. Go to Exodus. I'm going to show you something. Some people who met God and, and watch, watch what they say. See how long it's going to take y'all to pick up. Exodus chapter 15. We're just going to jump around through the whole Bible until I think y'all got it. <laughs> no, it's on y'all. <laughs> Exodus chapter 15. All right, I started with ease. Well, I shouldn't have started with this, but it's at the beginning. 
Exodus 15, we're going to start reading in verse 1. It said, Then sang Moses and the children of Israel this song unto the Lord, and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength in my in song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him an habitation. My father's God, I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war, and Yahweh is his name. That's Exodus 15. This is Moses, dude who met God. Y'all said this is a song he was saying. Y'all heard what he's saying. God, by him triumphing, he became his strength in his song, his salvation, and I will prepare him a habitation, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Go to First Chronicles. First Chronicles chapter 16. Chapter 16. Time we'll jump down. Go to verse 34. 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 34. This is another song. Now, there's another dude who met God a little bit. This is David singing this time. It said, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. His mercy endureth forever. And say ye, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather us together. Deliver us from the heathen, that we may give thanks to thy holy name and glory in thy praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel forever and ever. And all the people said, Amen, and praise the Lord. All right, y'all see the pattern so far? Not yet? All right, go to Psalms chapter 3. There's another song. Psalms chapter 3. Start at verse 7. It said, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all my enemies upon the cheekbone. Thou hast broken the teeth of the ungodly. Salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Thy blessings is upon thy people. Selah. Go to Isaiah chapter 41. We'll go to chapter 43. Isaiah 43. We'll start at verse 8. It's another dude that saw God face to face right here. Isaiah says, bring forth the blind people that have eyes and the deaf that have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and shew us former things? Let them bring forth their witness that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is truth. You are my witnesses, said the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I have declared and have saved and have shewed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, said the Lord, that I am God. Yea, before the day was, I am he, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work, and who shall let it? This is deep. Do y'all, y'all picking up the pattern yet? Still ain't got it. Well, I'm going to pause on this one. This right here make me happy. Do you see the picture of what's going on here? Isaiah in chapter 43. This is God speaking and giving witness and giving testimony to himself. Notice what God says about himself. I, even I, am Yahweh, and besides me there is no what? There is no other Savior besides me. This is God bragging on himself. And when he goes to brag on himself, he talks about the fact that he's the only one that can save. So that makes me think about something. If God desires to boast in this thing, that means God has connected somewhat of his work and who he is to this thing. It's a part of his identity. Because you don't brag about stuff that's not significant to you. And when he speaks and he brags and he boasts, he boasts about the fact that there is no other savior but me. And besides me, me and me alone saves. When Moses was singing, he, he got excited. And he said, the Lord has become my strength, my song. He is my salvation. That's the song that he was singing. That God is his salvation. That salvation belongs to God in Psalms chapter 3. This is the, the thing that God is bragging about. Go, just watch. Isaiah 44. Let's drive this home. I want you to get this picture. Because there's a major point connected to it. Isaiah 44, 6. This is God again, bragging on himself. Said, thus said the Lord, the king of Israel, in his redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and last, and besides me there is no God. 
Let's pause right there. Thus said the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the first, I mean, the, his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me, there is no God. So God is bragging on himself. There is no other ruler. There is no other king. It's just me and who? His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. And that Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, is a reference to Christ Jesus, our Savior. But notice how he, he introduces him. It is a part of the name of God that he is the Redeemer. That's his name. Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, the Savior of the world. This is a part of God's identity. This is part of what God is bragging on. Go to Isaiah 50, 45. Let's skip over to Hosea. Let's save some time. But I want y'all to see the point. Hosea chapter 13. Hosea chapter 13. It's right after Hosea chapter 12. 13, we're going to start reading at verse 1. It says, when Ephraim spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel, but when he offended in Baal, he died. And now they sin more and more and have made the molten images of their silver and idols according to their own understanding and all of it the work of the craftsmen that say of them. Let them that sacrifice kiss the calves. All right? This is God's description of Israel in their rebellion. So when he talks about Ephraim, he's talking about the tribe of Israel, the northern tribe of Israel. So we said when they spake trembling, what he mean by that is there was a time in the, in the nation where when they spoke or when they spoke to God, they were very humble. They, they came to God fearing. They, they, they was cautious about how they spoke to him and how they came to him. But then it came to a point where they just forgot all about him and they started worshiping this false God. They said, but when it came to Baal, they offended him Baal. So they turned from trembling at God to worshiping this false God. And it says, since they've done that, they sinned more and more and have made all these other images. Verse 3 said, therefore, they shall be as the morning cloud and as the early dew that passeth away, as the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor, and as the smoke of the chimney. This is deep. This is very poetic. Very poetic. So we're saying they shall be as the morning cloud. That means it's like the little fog that you see in the morning time. What eventually happens to the fog? It just go away. And that's the picture that he's saying. And he gives a whole bunch of things that goes away as the early dew. You see the little dew on the grass when you wake up in the morning. By the time you make it to work and get to working good, what happens to the dew on the grass? It dries up. It's not there anymore. So this is poetic pictures of him saying the same thing. So what do you think he's saying going to happen to these people? They ain't going to be there no more. <laughs> That's what he said, the smoke from the chimney. You see the houses when they turn their heaters on? You got a little smoke that rise up and eventually you don't see it anymore. You don't have a beam that just keep going on up and up and up into the air and you see it forever. No, it just disappears. And this is the poetic picture that he's giving of what's going to happen to these people because they turn from him. In verse 4, say, yet. He don't go all the way with it. He leave out some hope. Say, yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt and thou shalt know no God but me for there is no Savior besides me. This is God's call to these people. Y'all offended. Y'all went astray. Y'all did your own thing. You, you went against me and I'm going to destroy you. But you're going to know that I'm the Lord God and you're going to know that there is no Savior besides me. This is something that God keeps reiterating over and over again that he is the only one that saves. He is Redeemer. He is salvation. If you go through the Old Testament, they got all these names of God that we didn't get into. We were doing them because I planned on doing it at this point. You call him the rock of salvation, the horn of salvation. He is the arm of salvation. So all these things telling you who he is. And you think if you keep going through all these things and all these prophets, God wants you to know something about him. He's a savior. Now that don't sound deep, but that is deep. Because if God connects himself to this very act, the fact that he saves, it comes a part of his identity. He calls himself by this name, Savior, Redeemer, Salvation. When Jesus stepped on the scene, what did he say? Look, in the city of David, there is born what? A Savior. When Jesus came to the house, he said, Salvation has come to your house. This is who I am. Jesus is salvation. His very name means what? Yahweh saves. So God wants you to know something about him. He's a savior. Are y'all understanding that? And it's not just something that he does, it's who he is. 
And God could never deny himself. God is always going to be God. So since God is a savior and that's a part of his identity, that means he always going to be doing what? Saving. And wherever God is, salvation is. So if I need to be saved, what do I need? God. Because he is salvation. And it get a little deeper. Watch this. Y'all heard about the dude named Jesus, right? Just make sure. We heard about the dude named Jesus. And one of the most amazing questions about Jesus is, why in the world did Jesus come to this earth? Like, what did he show up for? Why did he make himself a man, come down and endure the suffering and all the foolishness that he went through? Why did Jesus ever step on the scene? Go to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18 is verse 11. Well, I'm going to start at 10. Start at 10. This is Jesus responding to his disciples. Now, they was asking him about who the greatest in the kingdom of God and all that good stuff. And he scolded them a little bit. But this is towards the end. He says, take heed that you despise not one of these little ones. Matthew 18, verse 10. For I say unto you that in heaven... The angels do always behold the face of my father, which is in heaven. For the son of man has come to do what? To save that which was lost. He said, this is the reason he came. Now he talked to them and they preaching about who the greatest in the kingdom. You tell Jesus was a preacher. They asked him a question. They ain't asking him about no salvation. They're like, who the greatest in the kingdom? And somehow he answered that question and started talking about saving folks. See, that's what preachers do. You just ask them a question, they just turn it and just get a chance to tell you their sermon because you weren't at church, son. <laughs> like pastor who won the game see the patriot lost and, and see lost Jesus came to say that <laughs> that what Jesus did he just flipped the whole script but notice what he said why did Jesus came to seek and to save that was lost so the whole reason Jesus came on this planet was to do what save some folks go to Luke chapter 9 watch it I want to get this deep down into your soul down deep in your soul. Luke chapter 9, verse 55. All right? And in this one, they was going to Samaria. We're going to read the whole thing. I'll just tell you. They were going through Samaria. Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. He went through the city of Samaria. Now, when he got there, the people of Samaria, they rejected Jesus. They're like, dude, you don't plan on staying here, so you ain't going to be in our town. They wouldn't let Jesus stay. And it said because his face was toward Jerusalem. So since he was going to Jerusalem, not kicking it in Samaria, they told him he couldn't stay there. And they ran Jesus up out of town. The disciples responded. James and John were like, hold up, G. Like, you want us to call down fire like Elijah did and we kill these suckers? And this is Jesus' response in 55. But he turned and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are. Like, you don't know what spirit you're working in. You don't. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to do what? To save them. It's like, the whole reason I came was not to kill folks, was not to destroy people, but I came to do, save them. This is Jesus' declaration of why he touched the planet. To save folks. Y'all got the picture? Make sure you got it. Go to John chapter 4. The only reason Jesus came. John chapter 4. <clears throat> the lady, she met Christ. At, at the well of Samaria. And she went back and told her town and they came back to see Jesus. In verse 42, this is their report to her after they met Jesus. It says, and he and said unto the woman, these are the people, now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed Christ the who? The savior of the world. So they had this idea that there was this person, Messiah, that was going to come to the planet. They understood that. But look at their understanding of what Messiah was. That this is indeed Christ. He's the Messiah. And the Messiah is who? The Savior of the world. So there's this picture that is connected with Jesus being Christ, Jesus being the Messiah, and that picture is that he's a Savior. This is our God. He saves. It's a part of his identity. It's a part of his name. And it's the reason that he claimed to this very little bit of planet that we call Earth. Do y'all get that? Y'all sure we got that? Now, let's think about this for a second. 
if God has connected his identity to this act of salvation and he has placed it upon himself as being the only reason he came answer this question make make it help you get my understanding do you think God can be something and claim to manifest that something in the world and fail that's a deep question it's like God can say I'm the creator. That's the name of God. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. Do you think that it's possible for God to say, hey, I'm going to create something new and go to do it and it not happen? Y'all sure about that? That's his name. He's the creator. And he said, I'm going to go create. And he'd be like, man, that nothing was very hard, man. It was very resistant. I couldn't get nothing to come out of nothing. (laughs) Y'all don't think God can do that. Now, God told you over and over again, he's the redeemer. He's the savior. He is salvation. He boasts and brags on the fact that can't nobody else save but him. And he told you that Jesus came to the planet to do what? Save. Go to 1 John chapter 4. Let me make it all the way to the end. I'm going to cut you all short. I'm going to bless you. Bless your soul. First John chapter four. I think somebody don't believe that. We just need a little more faith. Because when I get to my main point, it's gonna take a little more faith. First John chapter four, verse thirteen. Say hereby, John speaking, we know that we dwell in him, and he is in us because he has given unto us his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be what? You see it again, over and over again. And I skipped, I got a whole lot of scriptures. And I skipped a lot on, but you you see the point. Why did Jesus come to the world? To save it. That's the whole reason he came. Revelation chapter 5. This is the end of the book, y'all. Revelation chapter 5. And we started with a song, so we're going to end with a song. Watch this. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. It said, there's a new song. Saying, they sang a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every nation and tongue and people and kindred, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. This is the victory song of all the nations. So you got the picture here. This is a throne room picture. God, John gets the chance to see into heaven. And he sees the very throne of God in in Revelation chapter 4. And he got this radiant image of this great throne with rainbows around it. And these creatures bowing down and worshiping God. And now he sees all nations of everywhere. All humanity. All of these various manifestations of the genetic possibilities that God has put on this planet. God show all of it up there. And they singing and worshiping God. And look at the thing that they praise him for. It said because you have redeemed us. Out of all nations. And made us kings and priests unto our God. This is everybody. So there were some people. Running around. With spears in the jungle. Slaughtering one another. Cannibalizing each other. And they met this dude named Jesus completely transformed. And they standing up in heaven saying, you have redeemed us and made us kings and priests unto our God. You got little nappy head, little joker from Cedar Park, tall, skinny with a fat nose. Never been nothing in his life. Never really accomplished anything great. Never had anything. And he get a chance to stand and sing in the very presence of God. I'm a king and priest before you, God, because you have redeemed us out of every nation this is the work of God and the final picture that we get is that our God is going to be praised our God is going to be glorified for doing what he set out to do Jesus is a savior God is redemption he's the redeemer of our souls that's who he is that's the very reason that he came to this planet is to save people and when it's all said and done he's going to be praised for doing what he came to do so 
when I stand before God and when I seek and pursue God, I cannot diminish the person of who he is. What you mean by that? I ask you the question. Can God be something and try to enact that thing in the world and fail? Is that possible? Because if it's not possible for God to be God and not express his godness in the planet, that means it's not possible for God to come to me, to save me and not do what he came to do. It is impossible. So when Jesus came on this planet, he had a mission, and that was to save you. When you lift up your voice and you cry out to him for salvation and he hears your cry, he's supposed to do what he said he's going to do. That's who he is. So when we think of the saved thing and we think of seeking Jesus and we think of getting our life right, you need to understand and think of the fact that what you're doing is asking God to be God. And he cannot do that. He must be who he is. He has to declare his purpose. He has to accomplish his work because if he comes to you and don't save you, Jesus failed. If he lives in you and not deliver you, he is not God because he said that's who he is. And if he can't be who he is, we have no hope because he said there is no other savior but him. Do you understand what I'm saying? So when we pray, we're not praying for God to do something special on our behalf. When we pray, we're not praying for God to accomplish like this awesome thing that ain't never been done for. But when we pray, we're praying that God, you be God in me. That's what we're seeking for. God, you be God. So no matter what it is, Jesus, this is what you came to earth for. I'm addicted to what? It don't matter. Jesus, this is what you came to earth for. I need saving. And the amazing thing is, is the more jacked up you are, the better God get to show out. And he get to be more God. And he get to declare himself to a greater degree. He get to boast a little bit more. So that should compel you to run to him. Because he God. This is what he came for. Do y'all understand that? Jesus came to set you free. He came to be salvation. He came to deliver you. That's the whole purpose of him coming. So if you are bound and if you're controlled by sin, if you're still trapped in your old and evil ways, Jesus failed. He ain't going to fail, y'all. He cannot fail. He going to do the very thing he come to do in the end of the book, show you that we're going to be standing before him, praising him for it. Because that's who he is. Isaiah chapter 61. It's going to bleed into what we get into next week. But it's just. We got to get this deep down in our score. Isaiah chapter 61. This is why Jesus came y'all. This is who he is. He is salvation. The deliverer. We're going to start at verse 1. Very famous passage. Isaiah 61 verse 1. Says the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because. The Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, and he hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prisons to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, all of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaven is that they might be called the trees of righteousness, the plantings of the Lord, that he might be glorified. Now, this is Jesus when he when he came on the scene. This is the first scripture that he preached. But notice what he said. This is Jesus' life mission. This is his mission statement. This is what was on his business card. The Lord has anointed me to proclaim liberty. This is what he came from. To set at liberty those who are bound. Anybody ever been bound by anything? Jesus came to get you away from it. What did he say about them broken hearted folk? He sent me to bind up the broken hearted. Anybody ever, ever been, you know what I'm saying? Don't raise your hand in your heart. If life ever dealt you a bad blow and it crushed you. And it, and it created some type of trauma in you that it changed the whole very way that you look at people and relate to people. And it's deep down inside of you. That's brokenness. That's hurt. That's pain. And Jesus cared. He came to bind up the brokenhearted. That's what he came to do. So once you meet him, you meet healing. You meet deliverance. You meet all those things. And the question we were going to ask is, does the salvation that Jesus gives extend to emotional pain? I like though Jesus just only save us from action. Does he deliver us from hurt? 
Does he deliver us from pain? Does he deliver us from trauma and the scars of our heart? And if these words be true, yes, he does. That's who he is. So if you need salvation from emotional hurt, Jesus is what you need. If you need to be delivered from the trauma of your past and, and, and the chaotic things that happened to you because somebody did some evil to you, Jesus is what you need. That's who he is. And you don't have to spend the rest of your life struggling with this. The psychologists and the doctors, they lied to you. You don't have to learn how to cope. You need to find the Savior that that is your only hope. He can deliver you. Are y'all hearing me? Because that's who he is. We're going to end in Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. Talking about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 23. This is beautiful. Just, just, just hear, hear what he's saying. Talking about Jesus. And he says, and they truly, the priests before, were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. So there was many priests beforehand. But and the reason there was a lot of them because they couldn't keep on being priests because they died. Said, but this dude, this man, this Jesus, the surety of a better covenant, said, because he continueth forever. So since he exists for forever, he hath an unchangeable priesthood. There's never going to be anybody that's going to take his place. So he's going to always be there for us as our priest. We don't have to learn about anything because he's going to live forever. And watch what he do. Wherefore, since he lives forever, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make an intercession for them. This is our God. Since he lives forever, he said he's able to save them to the uttermost. That's deep. And, and, and that little bit of word, it got a lot of weight in it. To the uttermost, that's what he's able to save to. Now, what does that mean? It means he's able to save them completely to the full extent of salvation. That's what he's able to do. Like when people talk about when they obliterate something, they say it was utterly destroyed. It's the same connotation. It's the same word. You got it complete. You went all the way to the fullness of it. And Jesus is able, because he lives forever, to save you completely. That means he can do the whole thing. That means he just got to be get satisfied that um, I've been working on my cusses, so I don't cuss that much. And uh, I didn't stop stealing. God got me a job. And pray God, I ain't what I used to be. <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to sit content with that. I'm saying I've been reading my Bible a little bit more. Been going to church, you know what I'm saying? You don't have to sit content with that. You can put a demand on God. Now, this don't sound like Zinc Preacher. It doesn't sound like one of them other folk, but understand what I'm saying. You can put a demand on God. And what do you man him to be and to do? Be God. That's all I need. God, I'm yours. Save me. And when you see something in you that don't look like salvation, it don't look like Jesus came and did something to you, you can say, God, be God. This ain't you because you came to save. And you you ever live, he's able to save to what? The uttermost. He can get it all the way done. You don't have to stop. And it says he ever lives to make intercession for us. That's deep. I always give you all this example because I want you to get the picture. I used to go to one of them deep churches. And in them deep churches, you had these big conferences where they get the bishops in, and the end of the service lasts longer than the service. Because everybody coming up there for prayer. And the man walking around laying hands on everybody. And don't, don't y'all say it out loud. Like, raise your hand in your heart. If you ever done this before. I, I, yeah, raise your hand in your heart. I done did this before. When they up there, they're praying. You going to get prayer. They got the hand laying. Everybody laying hands on them. Then Bishop get tired, so he called a prayer team. Y'all come on up. Then you get in line, and that little old lady that you barely know, you end up at the front of her line. But you, you came up there for Bishop to pray for you, because Bishop got the power. So you be like, man, you go ahead. I'm saying, you go. <laughs> don't, don't say you that loud. Just raise your hand in your heart if you have done that before. You want the special man of God to pray for you, because you believed. That he got some power that this other little lady don't got. That's deep. But now let's expand this thing. If you believe that by the dude, 
And I say it like that on purpose. If you believe that by the dude, that a man has the ability to lay hands on you and it does something to you, how much more will the prayer of, prayer of God do for you? Just think about that. Because we get comfort. I'm saying, my granny, my mama praying for me. And you call people, I'm going through, could you pray for me? And that gives us a little bit of comfort in our side. When people know, girl, I'm praying for you. And you had that thing and you just was on my heart. And you'd be like, thank you. I needed that because, and all that good stuff. But just get this in your mind. The very king, creator of the universe, the one who has power with his tongue to create everything that we see. We still trying to figure out what he spoke with one word. Light is a mystery to us. We can't comprehend it. With all our scientific advancement, light is a mystery to us. And that's the first thing God did. We can't figure out the first thing. And he did that just with his tongue. That very tongue at this very moment is interceding for you. God is in the very presence of God right now in the ear of God telling God what God needs to be in you. That's what you got going on for you. So how much hope should you have that I can go on, that I can move forward, that I can be what God created me to be? God praying for me. Jesus got my back. Do y'all understand what I'm saying? This is the salvation that we have. So everything we talk about from this point on, we need to keep this in our mind. So whatever Jesus saved us from, if he said he can save us from it, we got hope that he can really do it. Because he told us that he can save us to the uttermost and it's who he is. He bragged on it. And it's the whole purpose and reason that he came. Do anybody got any questions? So the verse um, where it says that we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. So I've heard that to say like, okay, you have everything. Everybody has everything they need to be godly. Like there's no excuse for people not to live this life. But it seems that there's a caveat. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Yeah. Or it, the connection to everything that pertains to life and God and this comes through the knowledge of him. So <clears throat> if you want to just use logic and, and condemn yourself, you could do it this way. If I see something missing in me that pertains to true life and godliness, what that tells me is I don't know God. Because he says, through the knowledge of him, we pertain to everything that pertains to life and godliness. So at the level that I know him is the level that I get a manifestation of life and godliness in me. And the more I know, the more of that I see. So if I get to a place where I say, man, I ain't seeing what I'm supposed to see, I need to get to a place where I say I need to know him better. That makes sense. So that's not a blanket statement for everybody. It is a blanket statement, as long as you get all of it. Well, meaning like, if you don't know God, you don't You don't got it. Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. You talked about the end about Jesus um, making intercession for us, mm-hmm. and so I just have that question: If He's now at the right hand of God, I can see like when He was a man living on Earth, but why does He still, I guess, make intercession for us to God the Father when He is God also? Why would He do it to God the Father because He is God also? It's because of the way we see when we track through. Our salvation and our redemption. That's the way that God set it up. Is that. All of our lives and everything we see. What we refer to as God the father. He is the fountainhead of it all. And all the manifestations of it. Comes through the work of the father. And the sustaining of it is through the spirit. So it was God plan to save you. Jesus came to do it. And it's the spirit that spreads it out through all the world. It was God, the one that was speaking. The word is the one that created. And it was the spirit of God hovering upon the waters, guiding the whole creation. So that's just the way God made it work. So that's why he's doing it. He ever need praying. He praying for you. That makes any sense to you. I said, we don't get the deep, deep, deep details of the mystery. It is a mystery. How God works and be God. Like why God had to tell God that we're going to go down and just confound these people's lanes. But he did. Yeah, God like to talk. <laughs> Any other questions? Do people have angels? Do people have angels? I knew that question was going to come. <laughs> well, I, well, yeah. From Matthew the chapter 18. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the picture that the Bible gives is that there are levels 
of spiritual beings that have certain tasks and certain assignments. And so we can't conclude that there are certain angels, the Psalms and Hebrews quoted refers to them as ministering spirits meant to minister unto those who have obtained salvation. So there are some angels who work on your behalf. That's the way God set it up. And what we can learn from that, which I've been debating about when we're going to get into that, is that if that is the case, if they're ministering spirits sent to serve you, that means they're not greater than you. So for all your deep folks that send you on a quest to see angels and, and, and to experience an angelic visitation, what they're doing is taking you away from the head, which is Christ, because that's the only thing we need to see. Because we don't need to be seeking nothing less than me. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? It's like if I came and Miss April came to show you her big fancy house. And the thing that you go in there looking for is like, where where's the doormat? <laughs> You're like, what? That only exists to keep the rest of the house clean. <laughs> That's not a part of the grandness. We can put anything out of that. Because all it's trying to do is keep the rest of the house clean. And if you're looking for angels, all you're doing is looking for servants, your servants, who you're going to rule one day. Yeah, but there are angelic spirits that we that, that works on our behalf. Got one in the back. Um, you can explain it to me. I think I read most of the time it says Pentecost Day. Is that the, um, the religion? Or what is this Pentecost Day? And that's on the act. Can you explain that to me, please? Yes, the day of Pentecost. That's the day that the Holy Spirit came. But what Pentecost is, it's an Old Testament festival. In Old Testament, they got these certain festivals that they celebrated every year. And Pentecost came 50 days after Passover. So Passover was the meal that they celebrated when God delivered them out of Egypt. And 50 days after that, they have this other meal and celebration that they call Pentecost. And that's when they brought all the harvest in. They had this big celebration to God. And all the reference in Acts is is that this happened on the same time or the same day that Pentecost happened. And so some people get deep and try to show you the parallel between the outpouring of the Spirit and the festivals of Pentecost. And there is some validity to it, but the Bible don't give us too many details to that. Most of us, most of that just comes from you having to study and focus on God. But all Pentecost is is the 50-day celebration after the day of the Passover. So it was a, a yearly celebration. 